again, if you have your Bibles, please uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and we'll continue looking at the early church and how the Lord guided them, blessed them and used them to proclaim that glorious and wonderful gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, obviously, in the last message, we considered God's power on display in the resurrection, compelling the disciples to go and to be sent by the Spirit. And in the remaining uh, verses of chapter 1, we, we're going to skip over the Apostle Matthias being appointed to replace Judas. And then as you cast your eyes on chapter 2, we see the promised Holy Spirit coming as Jesus has declared and as the prophet Joel promised beforehand as well. Uh, the Apostle Peter starts to preach the gospel in verses uh, 14 through to 36. And then we see a glorious response by all those who were gathered and they're cut to the heart. So what I'll do now is I'd like us to read from verse 37 to 41 just to give us some perspective. But the focus of our message this morning will be on verses 42 to 47. But for context, just let's just read uh, from verse 37. Now, when they heard this, that is Peter preaching the gospel to them, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is a, one of the greatest revivals, uh, in-gatherings of God's people, and again, a reflection of the saving power of Jesus. Now, the question is, what, what are these 3,000 people going to do? What will they turn their attention to? Well, if the book of Acts was written today, and it was perhaps a survey of what was going on in many churches, Perhaps these 3,000 had a massive social gathering, a social function. Maybe they spent all their time practically helping one another. Or perhaps these 3,000 gathered together and marched down the main streets of Canberra lobbying for some political movement. Because that's what many churches, many Christians are involved in today. These can be um, good things, some of them even nice things. But are they the most necessary and the most needful for the church? If we look at what these 3,000 do apply themselves to in verse 42 to 47, we're going to see that their priorities are a little different to many churches. And that's not, that's not trying to talk down or talk over other churches, but that's the reality. If you look at various surveys of what people think the church is about, it's not about the things that are spoken of here in Acts 2, verse 42 to 47. That's social things, political things, cultural things. 
And as we read these verses, we have to ask ourselves, are these our personal priorities? And is this what is most evident in the life of City Reach Church? And even as I say this, um, I must say, as my wife and I have been chatting to people here, it is evident. It is already evident in this church. The things of God are dear to you, doctrine, fellowship, prayer. But I'm sharing this not one to say that you don't do these things already, but as this church grows, there'll be competing tensions. Right now, this church is gathered by those who are committed to something important. You don't come to City Reach Church because it's easy. If you want a convenient church to go to, I'm sure there are many larger churches with bigger programs, more people, more fellowship, less to do. But even as Tom was saying, hey, there's a roster for cleaning up, this is an all hands on deck type of church. And that's a wonderful thing. It's, it's a good thing. But as the church grows, as I say, there'll be many pressures on this gathering, this congregation to go in a million different directions. And, and when you're tempted to go in different directions, I want you to keep coming back to Acts 2 and say, what is most needful for the church? And so firstly, what is needful is we're going to look at four or five things. The first thing we see here is that they are devoted. They are devoted. And actually, I think we'll just read verse 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The first thing we note here is that they were devoted. They were devoted. And this word means that they were earnest, they persevered, they were constant, they were diligent, they attended, they adhered closely to, they were instant in and waiting upon one another. And I think it's fair to say this is probably the complete opposite of the carefree and casual commitment we see in many relationships today. Not just in the church, but in many important aspects of life. But certainly in the church, um, don't know what it's like in Canberra, certainly in, in Sydney, there is a, I think there's a determined plan to ensure that as you welcome people into the life of the church, you lower every barrier, and there's certainly truth and a need to lower barriers to understanding the gospel, you know, take jargon out of it. But then there's also a desire to lower the requirements to be committed to the life of a church. You, you don't have to turn up to all things. In fact, you don't have to turn up each week. If you can make it, that would be great. But, you know, whatever you can fit in, we would be glad to have you. 
there is a desire to lower commitment in the life of the church and not to have this picture of devotion. There's a big fence there, so they'll, they'll just stay there. But I think that betrays something. It betrays that we misunderstand the Great Commission. Because what does it say in the Great Commission? It says, go and make converts of all nations? Or does it say something else? It, it, it says, make disciples. You see, conversion, in some people's thinking, is a one-off event. If, if you make a decision for Jesus, then you're saved and you're added to the kingdom and that's the end of it. If you, tr if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, justified by faith alone, then you're saved and all is good. But Jesus doesn't say make converts. He says make disciples. And to be a disciple, yes, it involves conversion, but it requires ongoing sanctification. We're not saved by good works, but we are certainly saved for good works. And so I think it's wrong and unhelpful for churches to say to be a Christian is you can be as committed as you want to be in the life of the church. Because I think our commitment is a reflection of our understanding of God's commitment to us. And God's commitment to us is never casual. It's never indifferent. It's never carefree. God's commitment to us is to the point of death of his son. God is devoted to us and therefore as a right response to God, these disciples that we read of in the early church are devoted to God and to one another. And so one of the questions that's helpful to ask ourselves from time to time is how devoted am I? How devoted are you? I can guarantee you that in various seasons of life, you will be devoted to something. My, uh, my son just finished his uh, year 12 studies and for a certain season, he was very devoted to studying certain subjects. Uh, the, the study notes for that now lie on his floor and I hope when we get back, they're all packed up or in the bin. I don't think he's gonna be devoted to certain subjects anymore. But for all of us, there might be a stage of life when we're studying, when we're working, pursuing a career. Uh, there are those who live in Canberra who are devoted to sport or hobbies. People are devoted to many things. So to, to be devoted is, is, is not hard. We're all devoted to something. But if our devotions are to something other than the things of God, then perhaps we've been infected by this notion that it's easy to believe. We can't take Christianity too seriously. Or perhaps you have been devoted and at times you're a little bit mm, less devoted. Sometimes we're hot, sometimes we feel cold, sometimes we're a little lukewarm and we know that our Lord and Saviour has some, some fairly strong words to say about that in Revelation and if I can put this in a polite way, please, please don't be a Christian spitball. Don't, don't be 
one that's vomited out from the mouth of God because we go hot and cold from time to time. And for that to occur, then we, we're going to have to guard our hearts, walk humbly with our Lord, and we're going to have to humbly watch over each other's hearts, and that can only happen in community. So what were these 3,000 devoted to? The first thing we'll note is that they are devoted to doctrine, the apostles' teaching. See that in verse 42? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, doctrine in many Christian circles has a bad name. They often say doctrine divides. You know, just love people and just tell them about Jesus. But then the question has to be, which Jesus are we talking about? Is he God? Is he man? Is he, is he a type of God? What type of man? Is he just the, a perception of man? Is he an eternal Jesus or did he only come into existence at his birth? Oh, and what is it to love? Is it just how we feel? You see, love, who Jesus is, other important things in the Bible, the, these are all doctrinal issues. And, and we see in the book of Acts and in church history that doctrine has two effects. It does unite. It, it unites those true in the faith, those born again, those who love their Lord and Savior. And it also do, it does divide. It cuts off and it separates those that are not true, those who are unhelpful, those who are divisive, those who would cause damage to the life of the church. So doctrine weeds out false teachers, it marks out heretics. Doctrine unites in truth and separates from that which is false. I don't know how you think about doctrine, but I think of doctrine as food. Um, Tobias knows how much I love food. Um, and you can see how much I love food. It doesn't matter whether you're functional about food or you're really passionate about food. All of us put attention to food. Esther puts a lot of attention to food. But you just think about how much effort the average person puts into preparing a meal just daily, even if it's just pouring out cereal and putting some milk in there or some toast. How much people look forward to maybe trying a new restaurant or going out. We all delight in food in some way, shape, or form. But what does Jesus say when he's tempted by the evil one and he's been in the, in the wilderness for 40 days? He's, so he's really hungry. If there's anyone that's looking for food, it's Jesus. But what's Jesus say? He says, well, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's, he's not saying food's unimportant. He's actually saying... God's word, that which God speaks is revealed. That's even more important to me. That's what I crave above food. And so here's a litmus test for all of us. The amount of effort, uh, what we look forward to, is it spending time in God's word? So listening to the preaching of God's word, reading good Christian books, 
that enhance our understanding of God's words? Well, here it's evident that the disciples, these 3,000 disciples, are hungry, they are craving, they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're gathered publicly in the temples, but they're also meeting in homes. So they're unashamed to study God's word in public square, but they also bring it back to their homes. What were they studying? It wasn't just Paul's epistles, because they didn't have Paul's epistles at this time. They delighted in some of the things that we struggle to delight in, and that is the Old Testament. As Jesus, as you know, was on that road to Emmaus, he took his disciples and said, look, this is me. So he would have taken them through the Psalms and the Proverbs, Chronicles, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, and all these places speak of Jesus. And so sometimes we, we struggle with the Old Testament because we fail to see how it points us to our Lord and Saviour. But as much as I spoke about the resurrection, where do you think we learn most about the cost of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? I dare say it's in books like Leviticus. We, 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 we look at Jesus dying on the cross as a, as a simple one-off, it's done. But when you think of the intricacy, the, the attention, the blood that was shed in Leviticus, and then you combine that with Hebrews and say, now it is finished. It's places like that that we realize truly he is the son of God. But not only was it the Old Testament they looked at, the apostles were specifically appointed to continue to reveal to the church God's will for them. These 12 men... And remember, Matthias has just been appointed. Why was Matthias appointed? Well, Matthias was appointed because it says they needed to choose someone who had been there since Jesus' baptism, through all his ministry, witnessed his death and the resurrection. So what do they focus on? What do the apostles teach? Well, it would be reasonable to think that their primary discourse their primary discourse wasn't strategies to do xyz but rather the person and work of his person and work of Christ you know sometimes i've heard people say uh, we've done these bible studies before we've looked at Christ before and i my heart breaks because you think i've been married for 22 years if I was to say, okay, time up, 22 years, I'm filled. I, I, know, I know everything there is to know about my wife. Maybe it's time to change a new one. It's, it misses the point that as we know our Lord and Saviour, as we know people we love, we go deeper in those relationships. And so the apostles taught about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. They would have wrestled with him being the eternally begotten Son of the Father. Light of light, true light from true light, God of gods. They would have begun to unpack that his work, that he's the mediator, that he's the final prophet. 
all God's revelation culminate in him, that he is the ultimate high priest. Not only does he offer up, he offers up himself. And he is that king of kings that conquers all his and our enemies. But then the apostles also would have taught on other things. And this is where I think a church like City Reach may be a little different. Because up until now, I'd like to think most churches, all true churches would preach about these things and teach about these things. But there's something that's missing at times. You know, in uh, Acts 20, Acts 20, when Paul leaves the Ephesian elders, he knows he's unlikely to see them again. And he's, he's saying his tearf, uh, tearful farewell to them. He says, he calls God as his witness. And he says, I'm innocent of man's blood because I have preached to you the whole counsel of God. I've preached to you everything. All that you need to know. And the reason I say that this is um, this can be tricky sometimes is because this all of a sudden introduces the dreaded secondary issues of doctrine. Secondary issues. You see, there's a lot of things in the Bible, and even Peter acknowledges that some things that Paul writes is hard to understand. But Paul never, but Peter never says, you know what, some of those things that Paul writes hard to understand, so just rip it out of your Bible. In, in fact, all you need to do is maybe just keep John 3, chapter 3, or just keep all the red letter parts. You see, when we say all scripture is God-breathed, there's no jot nor tittle in this that is unnecessary or not needful. Now, some of it may be hard to understand, but all of it is necessary. All of it is necessary for our salvation. But you might go, all of it necessary for salvation? If you have a limited view of salvation, that is just penal substitutionary atonement, then I say you have a small view of salvation. Salvation speaks also of being adopted in God's family, of being sanctified, of being glorified, being prepared for good works. And so you need to be a church that delights in a whole council of God ministry. So as you organize your church, you will have membership according to what Scripture teaches. You will have church offices as Scripture teaches. You will have members interacting with one another as Scripture dictates. Marriages will submit to God's Word. Parenting, how we work on Mondays, Tuesday, Wednesday, every day of the week, will be under Scripture. All of these things, incidentally, aren't found in John 3. So if you have a small view of salvation then I fear you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out that the gospel applies to all of life. And so you want to be in a church where as you invite your friends, 
and you're looking at an obscure passage, you say, we're going to trust God that he has given us all that we need and we will rightly wrestle with it as Jacob wrestled with the angel until the Lord blesses you. Because friends, we um, live in a day of convenience, don't we? One where uh, we live on Parramatta Road and if I gave you directions to my house, I would give it using signposts called McDonald's. Because say it's the third McDonald's on yet. There's fast food places all throughout Sydney and it's not just the Golden Arches. But all these things speak of convenience, drive-through, instant fast food. And at the end of the day, you can get a dinner box for the family. And yes, it's cheap and yes, it's affordable. But at the end, you feel leaving like you've eaten, but you're unsatisfied. I'm very thankful that there is a movement to more thoughtful eating, don't you think? Like long lunches, home-cooked meals, banquets and feasts. And to me, I would love to see more of that moving from uh, sort of Twitter theology to deeper things where men have wrestled with the things of God and come up with historical creeds and confessions and catechisms. I know that you guys are very familiar with some of those things and, and know they're not above Scripture, but they are the work of, 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 of men who've thought deeply about these things and, and to sit and to read and to digest. That is like, to me, you know, a long table with your friends. Get these wonderful men around you teaching you things that they have considered about God. Uh, we will confess that we have various uh, uh, streaming services in our home, mainly around sport because we've got three teenage boys. Uh, we have lots of bandwidth on, on our internet, so I'm, you know the boys watch things, but we do encourage them to, to limit that because I say, um, in eternity, none of us will be watching Netflix or sport or surfing the web. Um, and although we will be perfected, we will still be considering the great subject of God. Because ultimately, even if we are perfected, we're still just perfected creatures. And we'll still be marveling at our Creator and marveling at the great work He has done for us. So it'd be good for us to, to get a head start. Uh, think of this as boot camp for heaven. Let's start thinking more about Apostles' doctrine. But not only this, this wasn't just uh, an incubator for those with big craniums. They were devoted also to fellowship. Notice that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. If I did a word association game um, in many Christian circles, you say fellowship, they go, oh, can I get you a hot beverage, a cup of tea or a coffee, maybe some biscuits. We're going to have uh, a social activity, some fellowship. And there's certainly an element of fellowship in these activities. But I think we're missing something if we think church is just, um, just a holy version of, uh, uh, I don't know, does Belconnen have an RSL? I'm sure they do. Some social club. We're not just holy RSLs. Koinonia, which is that word for fellowship, 
means participation, partnership, to share in something with someone. And I'm just going to read out uh, some references for you, just to give you a sense of the, the seriousness of this participation and partnership. In 1 Corinthians 10.16, it says that they have fellowship or partnership in the body of Christ, the blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. And so Christian fellowship, there's a solemnity, a seriousness about it. It's not simply social mingling. In Romans 15, 26 and 2 Corinthians 9, 13, it speaks about a koinonia or a contribution for the poor. You know, there, there, there were some material needs, in, um, not in their local church, but in other churches. And so they were helping another church. There's a church plant um, in Melbourne that um, we've had some dealings with and they're transitioning one from the other. And uh, there was a financial need there. And the members at Stanmore said, let's support them financially. And that is, although we haven't seen them, we haven't met them, there is a partnership. There is a true fellowship with one church with another. In Philippians 3.10, there is a, a koinonia or a fellowship in his sufferings. And it reminds us of our union with Christ in his sufferings. And even as Tom prayed earlier, we can't expect suffering. And the flesh says, I don't want to suffer. But the gospel reminds us that is a blessing because in some small way we are sharing with Christ in his suffering. So friends, fellowship is it's solemn, it's serious, it's, it's tangible. And there's often material sacrifice involved. Now I know that sometimes it's hard. Uh, it's hard to gather regularly with God's people. Uh, we have busy schedules, might be traffic, lots of obligations. But note here that these who gathered in the early church, they gathered daily. It says, and all who believed, in verse 44, were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, they were doing this continually. Now, with our modern eyes, and particularly our Western eyes. And what I mean by Western eyes is I had a friend who came from another part of the world. And he, I said, what are some things that you notice that are different here? And he said this really interesting thing. He said, there's less public space here and more private space. Everyone has more private space and less public space. And so, and what's the impact of that? It says, it says there's less community here. People live in their homes. People live to themselves. And even if they have a high wall or no wall, they're still by themselves. Thought it was an interesting observation. Here they shared everything in common. 
and to us it may look a bit cult-like. But I think we are reading this from a filter of Western individualism. We are saved individually, we're saved one by one, but we are added to a body. And certainly in 1 Corinthians and Romans, it says that we belong to one another. And for them in the early church and for us as well, this should open up opportunities for encouragement, support, care and help. You see, the gospel breaks down individualism and selfishness. They had fellowship together. And of course, this also is linked to the first point that these believers learnt together. They learnt in community. And the reason I share that is, uh, you, you know the, um, the phrase sola scriptura, scripture alone being the, the ultimate, the only authority above us, that can be perverted in the modern day of individualism. And you'll say, how? Isn't sola scriptura a good thing? Well, it is a good thing, rightly understood. Sola scriptura was never nuda scriptura. And what I mean by that is it's never just you and your Bible. It's not about you and your private interpretation. It is always in the context of the wider church. You think you've got a new learning about Jesus and you're, you're the first one. Don't do a PhD on that because PhDs are about novelty. Novelty in, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe novelty in other aspects, but not, not in theology. Uh, it's good to learn together. And as they're having fellowship, they're learning about the things of God together. Just some brief applications from this fellowship point. If the last two years has taught us anything, um, technology like this, this, Zoom, live stream, virtual meetings are certainly convenient. But they are a poor substitute for actually being together. I, I know that if you had your church camp, if this church camp was, hey, you know, to save some money and to save on fuel because it's two hours from Canberra, let's just set aside 48 hours. We'll get a Zoom license for perpetual online and we'll, we'll, we'll circulate the schedule so that at this time Tom will talk to us and at this time we'll all get Maggi noodles and we'll all have a meal together. Certainly cheaper, certainly more convenient, certainly easier for those with young kids trying to get them to sleep. But I think we all understand we'd miss out on something very important. What you do over this weekend, what you do week by week, is critical, critical for healthy church life. The second question I have is, who do you have most fellowship with? Who are those that you would ask for help if you needed assistance? Those who've been in our church for a longer period, when they need help, they instinctively ask people from the church for help. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Those who are newer, they've got to learn that being part of our church family means that you do actually have a family with all the crazy aunts and uncles and weirdo cousins. That's, that's our church if you ever visit Stanmore. But if you've joined a church over time, I think it would be fair to say that 
The people you ask for help are those who you are most closest to. Those you spend more of your social hours, and of course you've got to work Monday to Friday or whatever it is, but when you have free time as it were, who do you spend time with? I often give the illustration at our church to the kids of salad dressing. You know, I'm a chemist. Um, salad dressing primarily is composed of two parts. Uh, an oily part, could be olive oil, uh, some sort of oil, and uh, an acidic part, like balsamic vinegar or something like that. Salad dressing, French dressing, Italian dressing, it's all vinegar and oil. You stick it in an object, and you know what happens? It, it's just like there's two layers. So what do you have to do? You've got to shake it up. And so for a season, you can't see what belongs to what. But over time, it will separate. Oil goes with oil and the vinegar goes with the vinegar. And so I'd ask you, who do you naturally gravitate towards? If you naturally gravitate towards God's people, that's a good thing. But if you naturally gravitate towards the world, if your fellowship, if your deepest relationships are with the world, then you might want to reconsider where you're most comfortable in, of the world or amongst God's people. Do you prioritize God and prize fellowship? You enjoy spending time with believers. And not just here. I mean, maybe you have to pack up and clean up where you meet. I mean, um, there's joy. There's joy to be had uh, taking out the garbage, setting up chairs, putting away the AV. Now, more briefly, I just want to focus on two more points. Uh, here it says they broke bread. Uh, verse 46 and uh, it's Ben isn't it Ben Ben asked me last night hey, hey Mike what's the breaking of bread mean is it the Lord's Supper and I said eh, I I don't think it is it, it could mean that and certainly that's what comes to our mind today but the breaking of bread uh, as a Lord's Supper thing really came on later here the context shows that they're actually eating food and receiving food with gladness in their homes. And this shouldn't surprise us or shock us because the theology of food um, in the Bible is, is quite prevalent. Um, take, for example, first sin was through food. I mean, you know, there, there wasn't a banquet, but there, there was sin that brought food in. But quite often when there is a picture of friendship and peace, to symbolize that, when you think about the patriarchs, they eat food together. Um, even today, I know some people are preparing for marriage. Um, who's that? Andrew, you're, you're preparing for marriage, right? You're just going to have a wedding ceremony and then everyone go home? If you're, if you're a wise man, economic man, that's the best thing to do. <laughs> but no, usually, usually there's some sort of meal. Even if it's a light meal, there's refreshments, there's something to mark um, birthday parties. Who has a birthday party and they just play games and have no food? It, it revolves around food. It reminds us of life and it reminds us of friendship and peace. And this is significant because when we eat, when we celebrate, we do that with family and friends. We don't usually sit with enemies. You sit 
with your family. And as they ate together, their hearts were glad, they rejoiced, they worshipped. Now, I was mentioning this to Tom a, while, a moment ago. Uh, in, in Sydney, there are um, special services and organisations that specialise in collecting unused food, excess food, wasted food. We live in a day and age with so much abundance and supply. I know it's getting more expensive to buy food, but realistically, we have more food to do with and we have more food than, than previous generations. And I take an interest in sociology and research trends in things like housing. And from what I can see, there's a trend as well in housing. Our houses are getting bigger. But the number of kids we're having is reducing. So in effect, we're having bigger homes with less people in them. I don't get a sense that in the early church, they had 2.8 kids, five bedrooms, all with en-suites. In fact, they were probably subsistence farmers that were struggling to put food on their own table. They were all probably shared or cramped in one big room living together, and yet they showed hospitality one to the other. I think we have to ask ourselves in the modern church why we with so much are often reluctant to have people in our homes. And this is very different to having meeting up for coffee in a cafe or going out for a Thai restaurant or meeting in a pub for a meal. It's very different having someone in your home. Who was it was talking about authenticity and being genuine? I can't remember who it was. But I, I think it spells, it marks authenticity to have people in your homes. Because guess what? The toilet seat's still up. It's probably not dirty. The laundry's still on the floor kids' socks and clothes everywhere, by all means, clean up if you can. But to have people in your homes opens up vulnerability. And for us, we've certainly seen lots of gospel opportunities. A healthy church not only studies doctrine together, not only has fellowship together, they have food together, they have each other in their homes. And then the final thing here is note that they devoted themselves to prayer. Breaking of bread and the prayers. I think it would be fair to say that on our deathbeds, um, we'll have many regrets. One of those regrets will not be, I should have spent more time in the office. None of us will say, oh, I wish I'd spent more time at work. But many of us will say, I wish I'd spent more time in prayer. And yet we're anxious about staying back at work or getting to work early or getting this report done. But we're less concerned about our prayer life as individuals. Look, this is something we all struggle with. Pastors struggle with it. The tyranny of the urgent. You've got to get sermons done. You have to administratively. And so I'm not saying this as one who's... Uh, reached uh, a point of maturity here but but that again shouldn't surprise us 
Don't the disciples ask Jesus, teach us how to pray? Aren't these same disciples, after they've been instructed by Jesus, at the hour of greatest need, and he said, stay back with me to pray, Jesus is about to be crucified. What are the disciples doing? They're asleep. And of course, even if we do pray, there's warnings about the dangers of hypocrisy as we pray. But here I think we see something helpful, a church committed to prayer. And as hard as it is to pray individually, there's something about whether we learn theology together, whether we have fellowship together, it is praying together. Now, I'm sure City Reach, in Bible studies, in worship services, there are elements. There are times when uh, elements of that time devoted to prayer. I think that's true of most churches. But I, I think there's also, even in this program for the weekend, there's time for just time to pray. And some people would say, if you were back in Canberra, or if you were in our part of the city, if, if I said, hey, we're going to do, if a local church said, we're going to do a holiday Bible club, and we're going to spend four days, five days reaching out teenage kids or a youth group, or we're going to do a soup kitchen. If some churches did that, I'm sure they would get volunteers. But if they said, hey, let's spend three days in prayer, I don't know how many people would necessarily sign up for that. I'm not saying you have to sign up for three days, but I think you see the point. They prayed. And it also knows that it, it suggests that these prayers were set. And so um, as at our church, uh, we try to set apart, we have our worship service that goes for about an hour, 20, an hour and a half. But we also have a time where we every week where we just pray for, for an hour. It, it's not a 40-minute sermon and then 20-minute prayer. There you know, might be a short reading and then we pray. We pray for you as a church. We pray for other churches. We pray for missionaries overseas. We pray for our government. We pray against unjust laws. We pray for uh, our leaders. We pray for their conversion. We pray for one another. We pray for ministries. And... A couple of times a year, we um, set aside an afternoon of prayer. And again, for new people in our church who've never been to one, they say, I'm not sure what this looks like or whether I can do it or if we even have enough time to pray. But by the end of it, but and they're, they're saying, when's the next one? Um, why is it important to pray? And why is it difficult to pray? I think it's important to pray because it ultimately reminds us of the sovereignty of God. And unless he builds the house, we labor in vain. But because we live in a day where man is seen to have put uh, a human being on the moon, we can talk to one another. We're technological giants, but we're spiritual minnows. We're, we're dwarfs. We think we can do everything, but prayer reminds us we can do nothing apart from God. And so it's both humbling 
but it's also helpful because it reminds us of the reality of the day, that we are but men and women and we need to rely on God. So just in closing this session, we're reminded that as a church and as you grow, you can be distracted to do many things. But you need to be, we need to be at Stanmore and every church needs to be devoted. We, we, we can't be carefree and casual and laissez-faire about this. I, I often say to those who are studying for exams, I say, what does that exam, I, I, I'm, I don't want to diminish hard work and diligence, that's, if, if that's where God has placed us, we must, but it is a benchmark. It is a benchmark if we are committed to those things in the other spheres of life, surely we can, we, we can devote a similar amount or even greater energy to the things of God. So are we devoted? Are we devoted to doctrine? And yes, by all means, consider Christ's work in John 3, but also in the rest of John and the other Gospels and all the epistles and the Old Testament as well. Now we devoted to fellowship, breaking bread, sharing life one another. And it seems superfluous in this context because you're already doing that. But there will come times and seasons when that is hard, when it's difficult. And don't just think of Acts 2, think of these days and say, this is good days. These are, and as you grow as a church, you want to maintain this. Because as we've seen in our own church, it becomes less self-evident as you grow. People come for different things. So may I encourage you to continue in the things that you're already doing and excelling in. And may God continue to grow in grace and in these things as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the simplicity of Christians living together, learning together, growing together, fellowshipping, serving and praying together. And I do pray for the brothers and sisters here at City Reach in Canberra, that you would strengthen the bonds of love between them, that they would have a deep and abiding hunger for you and your word, that you would feed them through Tom and others who preach from time to time. They would have deep fellowship, sacrificial, costly fellowship, one with the other, so much so that it would be a stark contrast with the world that is so lacking in commitment. May they see genuine love for one another and know that they are yours. And also, Father, I pray that they would eat and drink to the glory of God together and devote themselves to prayer, pointing to you at all times. I pray, Father, for the church here at City Reach, that you would grow them spiritually and numerically over time. And the church would be a bright and shining light in the ACT. And as they grow, they would partner with other churches, just as other churches have partnered with them. And Lord, that your kingdom would expand and extend through the ACT and to the ends of the earth, through the work and the faithfulness of your servants here and again, enabled by your spirit. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.